Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right, let's get into it. Matthew chapter 17, verse 24. So this is right after we finished last week, the transfiguration, Jesus' teaching and foretelling about his death and resurrection. Verse 24, this is when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma, that's fun to say, drachma, tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. Now that is as confusing as it sounds. Uh, does, uh, does your teacher not pay the tax? Yes, yes, he does not pay the tax. Yes, he does pay the tax. I'm as confused as you are. But the emphasis is not on his answer because right after that, he has a conversation with Jesus that is what this is about and this is why Matthew put it in here. So he says yes, we all laugh because that's silly. And then when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him and first he said, what do you think, Simon? And man, if that's not so good, I love the way that that's framed. Because you imagine they're walking in, Jesus is in front, Peter's there, and somebody's like, hey, does your teacher, does he pay this tax? And he's like, yes. And and I can imagine they're like shuffling into the door and Jesus kind of looks over his shoulder. He's like, Peter, what do you think? From who do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? Do Do they tax their sons or do they take it from others? And when he said, well, he said it from others. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free? Is that what you're telling me? And he pauses and he responds in verse 27. He says, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Man, take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, yeah, this is as wild as it sounds. So they're having this conversation and Jesus is like, Let me ask you a question, Peter. When kings tax people, do they tax their own children to pay for the castle that their kids are living in, or do they tax other people to pay for the castle? He says, well, they tax the people. Kings don't tax their own children to live in the castle. They're the king's children. And Jesus says, so what you're telling me is that the children are free. Everyone's like, yeah, I think we all kind of agree that. But then Jesus says, Okay, so now that we've all agreed upon that, there's another point that should be made, and that is, while this is simultaneously true, we also don't want to offend them in a way where they won't hear the fact that this is true. So go down to the river, cast your fishing pole, pull up a fish, and you're gonna find some tax in his mouth. Go ahead and pay the tax with that. Now, in order to understand this tax, we've got to go back up to the beginning of of 17, this this two drachma tax. It's important for us to understand that this was based off of Exodus 30 verses 11 through 16, kind of loosely. And the idea being that this was not a Roman tax. This is not something that um, a Caesar instituted that all of the Jews had to pay. This was a tax that the Jews collectively decided we're gonna charge each other this tax and the purpose of it is to pay for restorations and upkeep in the temple. So the temple is sitting in Jerusalem. It's a massive, beautiful temple. This is where all the Jews come and they gather and this is where all the formal sacrifices are made and all the priests do their priestly duties and stuff. And in order to finance that upkeep and make sure that you know, the floors get swept and there's some you know, modifications need to be done, pillars are falling apart, we're gonna tax the people as a whole and take that money and we're gonna pay, we're gonna use it to fund uh, the upkeep of the temple. So what this guy wants to know is, hey, does your teacher, Jesus, does he pay the tax and in that and in paying the tax, does he care about the temple? Does your teacher care about our building and our structures and our programs and our processes? Now this is important for us to wrestle with today because this raises an interesting question. 
Does Jesus care about our routines and our buildings and our rituals and our programs? Or does he care for the people we're supposed to serve with those programs and those buildings and those routines? See, the problem that we run into often in the modern day church is the same problem that these guys are running into. They're taxing people heavily to upkeep a building while nobody is upkeeping the people. We're taking a lot of resources and structuring a lot of rhythms within the life of the church to maintain buildings and systems and programs. And what's happening is the same thing that's happening here. What started off as we need a facility to facilitate serving these people. That's a good thing. No one's gonna say no to that. The problem is that eventually we start taxing the people to take care of the stuff we built in his name rather than caring for the people that he told us to care for in his name. And so the question is, Jesus, do you care about the stuff we're doing in your name? Well, the answer is, is this the stuff that I asked you to do in my name? So as to not offend, because here's, here's, here's the issue, because what he says here, oh, let me back up just a second, because I want to address these two points he's making, because he, he, his conversation with Peter makes two strong points. And the first point is that he himself is the son of God. He's using this section of scripture to definitively express he is a son of the king and therefore is exempt from the tax. We all understand that a king is not gonna make his kids pay tax for the home or the castle he lives in because the people pay the tax for that for his kids. And if you guys understand that principle that the children are free, Jesus is using this principle to teach us that he is the son of God and therefore, yes, he is exempt from temple tax and he doesn't have to pay it. But there are some people who don't understand who he is yet and to keep them or to create a stumbling block from them hearing who he is, he decides to go ahead and pay the tax anyway. So he doesn't have to, he's not obligated, but in order to keep a barrier from people hearing who he really is, he goes ahead and he says, this is a small thing. As a matter of fact, it's not even gonna really cost me anything. I'm not taking money out of my own pocket because God is going to affirm the fact that I am not creating a stumbling block for these people and he's gonna create a miracle and the resources are gonna be taken from somewhere not outside of my pocket. So the two points he's making are one, yes, he is God, but the second is this larger issue that he doesn't want these folks to take offense. He wants them to understand what he's communicating in his ministry because the truth is that offense often blinds people to hearing the truth and he wants to erase the offense or remove it temporarily so that they can actually hear the truth. And the point that he's trying to make here is an important point for us. He's trying to say that it is good to remove issues of offense so that you can love your family well. There are a lot of things that we are convinced are issues of first importance and are worth drawing a line in the sand over and fighting wars over. But the truth is the only thing that's worth fighting over is the, the truth that the only way to God is through Jesus Christ and Him crucified. All other issues are tertiary issues that we address as needed, but do not keep you out of the family because you dance weird during worship. You follow? A lot of that is rooted in how you grow up. A lot of that is rooted in your culture, or who you watch, or, or what you read, or how, how the expression to this is. Look, I'm not gonna fault a guy for during worship, his response to worship is just this. That's biblical. But I'm also not gonna fault a guy whose posture during worship is this, because that is also biblical but we don't get to create a stone of offense because we say, you're out because you don't do it like me. Yeah. 
So what Jesus is saying here is that in the family, if you want to keep the unity, which he does, you have to be okay just removing some of the offense and refusing to trip over that stuff, even though people tell you you have to trip over that stuff. You guys following where I'm going with this? So he says, I want you to emphasize loving people and when you can, remove the offense. Go ahead and pay the tax. Do the thing that needs to be done in order so that they can hear what you have to say. Go ahead and do as much as you can to remove the offense so that people can hear the truth. What are some practical ways we do this here at our church? I made a decision when we planted this church that this stage on Sunday mornings is reserved for Jesus Christ. That is what we talk about on this stage. So what that means is, as long as I'm the pastor, there will not be any politician from the right or the left standing on this stage talking to you on Sunday morning about how important it is for you to vote for them. While it may be important for us to exercise our vote out there during the week, this is not the place for that. So we made a decision when we planted that we're not going to do that. I did that as a way to remove the offense because of whatever side of the fence you sit on from keeping you hearing the gospel. There are personal convictions that I make in my life about things that I do and do not do that have nothing to do with sin issues but have everything to do with offense issues. I want you to hear the gospel message so I'm going to proactively shut my mouth on issues that I know are hot topics. Because what I want more than anything is the privilege to preach the gospel to you but you won't hear it if you read 50 messages in my timeline on Twitter about what I think about this and what I think about this and my, my personal strong opinions about this. Look, and I said this last week, there comes a point in our spiritual growth where the best thing you can do is just to go ahead and cross out everything in the gain category of what you want and your freedoms and your expressions and all the stuff you get as a great American. Just go ahead and cross it out as loss because the only thing in the gain category is Jesus Christ. So go ahead and suffer that stuff as loss. Go ahead and say to yourself, I don't get the right to share my opinion because chances are my opinion's probably wrong. Let me ask you this. Do you believe the same thing about everything that you did five years ago? No. So there's a strong possibility that the things you believe right now are wrong or you will change your mind about. Well, we live in a culture where people will crucify you for things you said 10 years ago. So if you know that, go ahead and keep it to yourself and make a decision that the only thing you will spend your breath lifting and magnifying is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, am I saying you can't have strong opinions? No, certainly, I have lots of strong opinions, but you know who gets to know those? The people who are the closest to me not on this podcast that's gonna be broadcast all over the internet that can be diced up and, and framed together any way you possibly want, but the people who sit in my living room, the people that I have conversations with that I love, that I see face to face, those are the ones, they, they can hear my opinions if they wanna hear it, but you gotta understand that we live in a day and a time where everyone is looking for something to be offended about and stumble over, and if you want to preach the gospel, you're just gonna to have to make the decision to remove some of those things even though you're right, even though you are free. Paul says that. He's like, I, I will gladly trade in my freedom. That's essentially what the, like, the last six chapters of 1 Corinthians is about. I will gladly trade in the things that I am free to do because I love my brothers. Now that idea of loving family is what Matthew uses in this last 24 through 27 as a springboard to go into 18. He uses his language to kind of talk to us about things like little children, little ones, brothers. Essentially, these terms that you'll find in Matthew 18 are the terms that we would use to describe relationship in God's family. 
So what we're gonna do as we go into Matthew 18 is now that he set up this idea, he says in verse 25, he says, so, so the sons are free. He's using this language of sons, daughters, brothers, children. He's gonna leverage those conversations and those words as we roll into chapter 18. And Jesus is going to answer some of these questions. How do the sons and daughters who are free view and treat each other? How do the sons and daughters of the king supposed to view and treat children? How are we supposed to view and treat kids and babies and the unborn? How as we, as the people of God, are supposed to resolve conflict and live in peace as a family? Now, it's fun stuff, it's exciting stuff, it's convicting stuff, but it's very important for us to to read this and understand how Jesus wants us to live in community with each other because this applies to not just our church but also our homes. What we're talking about is how our posture should be towards each other within the church. But man, we all know that the church is the overflow of the home. You're a religious person if you practice this at church but you you don't do it at home. You're religious if all, you, if all the praying you do during the week is on Sunday mornings, if the only time you crack this open is when I tell you to turn to a chapter and read it, you're religious. And you're no different than, than the guys that Jesus was, was standing against in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The people who say, well, I, I, I have the, the outward appearance of someone who is religious or someone who is holy and devoted to God, but there is no substance there. Jesus calls those people whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. That's not what we want for, our people, for, for us. We wanna be trees full of fruit, amen? So let's do the hard work of figuring out what Jesus expects of us in our view of children and each other. And that's the setup for Matthew 18. Go to Matthew 18 verse one. So it says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I love this because Jesus is essentially saying, who, who, who told you you were in? Right, Jesus, now that we're all in, who's the greatest? And Jesus calls a child over and he's like, who said you were in? Because unless you become like this child, you can't even enter. Now once you enter like a child, greatness is also still determined by being like this child. And then he goes on and he says in verse four, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believed in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. What's a millstone? Well, for us, go ahead and imagine a tractor tire. That's South Georgia enough. You lead somebody astray, you lead one of his little ones astray, it would be better for you to have a tractor tire tied around your neck and tossed into the sea. Now, let's go to this. Who are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus answers that pretty easily and pretty clearly, children. But that's saying a lot, because we all know some children, right? Mm Mm-hmm. He ain't talking about my children. He's not saying the maturity level of a child. He's not saying the obedience of a child. He says in verse four, whoever humbles himself like this child. So children are the greatest in the kingdom of God because of the humility that they model. Now this word humility in Greek is tepenu, and it means to cause or to be lower, essentially to lose prestige or status. It's the same word used in Philippians 2.8 when Paul is talking about Jesus. He says, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what he's saying is that this 
humility that you see in a child is essentially a trade of prestige and status for Jesus. So those who are the greatest in the kingdom of God are those who swap their desire to be greatest and first, to have a shelf filled with trophies, to have achieved in financial and educational gains, to trade all of that into what you would see in a child to trade the status and the prestige of one in the world who has achieved everything the world aspires to, to a child who has no ambitions or aspirations other than just hanging out with his dad and enjoying his company. Those are the greatest in the kingdom of God. The folks who make a decision to say what this life that I'm living is all about is not chasing the American dream. It's swapping that status and saying, spending time with my heavenly father and making sure that he is loved and honored in my life and in my choices, that is what is most important. And Jesus says that is the definition of greatness in the kingdom of God. Status, prestige swapping. Humility is essentially bringing yourself low and it is the mark of God's family. But there's more to what he's saying. He's saying you should also take what he's explaining about children as a sign for how we're supposed to view children in God's family. Now he is using the child as an example for the way we should aspire in humility, but he's also saying something very specific about children in general. He's saying that we should honor children and not just tolerate them. There's a thing that happens as you get older. And it is, it's almost like a leaking of your patience. I'm experiencing this. As you progress in experience, you have less and less patience for people who are struggling with things that you have overcome. Because your memory fades and you can't remember what it was like to be like that. And so you have, you have little grace, little patience. I had a conversation with my wife the other day about what happens in the life of children and teenagers when they freak out about stuff that doesn't matter. They have in their minds the ambitions, I'm gonna do this thing or this thing is gonna happen in my life. I was already told yes, mom and dad said this is gonna happen and I'm looking forward to this and because of life experiences or something happened, it's like no, that's not gonna happen. This is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Now at 40 years old, that's not the worst thing that's ever gonna happen to you. (laughs) But listen to me, at seven, that is the worst thing that's ever happened to them. At 12, at 13, when they haven't lived the life that you lived, that is the worst thing that's happening to them. And when you react at 45 to the worst thing that's ever happened to you, that may be the worst thing that's ever happened to you, you throw a little bit of a tantrum too, don't you? We're guilty of it. And so what Jesus is saying when he's holding this child in front of him, he says, look, you should honor these kids and love them and not just look at them as an inconvenience because that's not how your heavenly father looks at you and he sees you as children. So when you're, when you're in that moment with a child, whether it's your child or not, and you've got less than zero patience for them, I want you to just hit pause for a second and if you can, just possibly for a moment, put yourself in God's position and imagine what it's like for him to parent you. It's not pretty. <laughs> And so as Jesus is standing there in the midst of the people and he's got his, I can imagine he's got his arms on this kid. He's saying to the people there, look, what, 
what we should aspire to in seeing this kid is, is his humility and his faith, but I'm saying that we should honor and we should love and we should be active in leading these kids to Jesus and not hiring other people to do it. We should, have, we should have the patience required to walk them to the cross, to model for them patience. I watch so many parents who lose it on their kids in the grocery store, and then later on, they can't figure out why their kids have no patience in school. Where do you think they learned that from? They learned it at home. They're not watching their parents model patience with them, and then we freak out that they don't have, why didn't you learn this? Well, where would they have learned it from? So I imagine Jesus as an amazing, like, Wow, just he, he, he embodies everything that a great father would embody standing there with this child. And he's telling us, look, I love these kids so much and I want you to love them the way that I love them. I chose every human being who ever lived to start off like this because I love this. And if you don't love this, I don't have patience for people who don't love this. In fact, I have such little patience for people who don't love this like I love this, that if you lead one of them astray into sin, it would be better for you to have a millstone tighter on your neck and toss into the sea because I ain't got no patience for people who have no patience with children. Oh, that's me. Jesus, forgive me. So in that vein, while he's talking about sin, he jumps over to verse seven. He says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. This is classic Jesus. He's talking, he's like, all right, I, I talked about sin. I'm gonna chase down this rabbit trail for a minute because I want you to get this, get, I want you to understand this. Woe to those who lead any of these little ones into sin. In verse seven, woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Look, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Because it's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes than to be thrown into the hell fire. So he uses six where he's talking about sin to introduce this interesting thing. And then he goes back in in, in verse te, uh, 10 talking about the little ones. But he makes this interesting little segue to help us understand how we're supposed to, as the family of God, wrestle with this concept of sin. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that sin goes away. It doesn't mean that temptation goes away. Becoming a Christian means that temptation will continue to be in your life as it gets rooted out through your process of sanctification. The Holy Spirit is rooting that stuff out over a lifetime. It doesn't disappear. You're not gonna stop being tempted by the stuff you were tempted with before when you become a believer. Some of that stuff, you'll become a new man and God will give you new uh, desires immediately and all of a sudden that stuff won't happen. But for a lot of us, it is an ongoing cycle of learning to put the flesh to death and say, no. And this is what's interesting. When you join God's family and temptation doesn't leave, we're told in John 10.10 10, that the enemy, he wants to steal, kill, and destroy what God has done. And so when you become a believer, temptation only ramps up. And how does the enemy ramp up his temptation? He preys on your flesh. Now follow me because this is an important thing for us to understand because especially when I talk with people who are struggling with like regular habitual sin, um, addiction type stuff, a lot of the struggles that we have are tied to our flesh. And I see a lot of folks being like, man, I got a war in the spirit. I got to do some more prayer. I got to get into the, man, I got I, I to do some spiritual stuff to combat this physical temptation. I got news for you. The best way to combat physical temptation is to physically run from it. You gotta be like Joseph. Even if you're running out of the street while it's grabbing your cloak and you run out in the street in shame because you ain't wearing any clothes now, you've gotta run from it. So here's what I'm saying. The enemy likes preying on our flesh. He likes going after what you used to like to be tempted by, then the best way to combat that temptation is to put that desire to death so that you don't want it anymore. Nobody in this room is gonna be tempted by the enemy by things that you've never wanted in the flesh in the first place. 
Everybody is tempted by the enemy when he comes and he tempts you with the stuff that you already want, that you used to indulge in. So if you want to overcome, the best spiritual warfare you could participate in is repentance, turning from that, giving that flesh to Jesus, hanging on the cross and saying, I'm done with it. I don't want that part of me anymore. You address the deep desires to want that stuff, and when that's gone, then guess what? The temptation doesn't work. It's like the enemy's come and knock on your door. It's like, hey, you want this thing that you've never been tempted by before? No, <laughs> no, I'm not interested. Because there's no pull, there's no desire, because that stuff has been crucified with Christ. You follow? So he's saying you want to fight the enemy? Go ahead and cut it off. And and it's not just the act of like just crucifying your flesh. He gives some practical sides of this too, and this is important. He tells us to actively remove the things in your life that leads to those desires. If your hand and your foot cause you to sin, if they regularly run to to touch sin, um, then go ahead and kill it. Let it go. If your eyes and your ears are the problem, if your mouth is the problem, go ahead and remove those things. Now, he's not saying go ahead and remove your actual physical appendages. He's using it as a spiritual principle to tell us if the issue in your life is gossip, then you need to remove the people in your life who feed that desire to gossip. If your issue is the phone or computers or the internet, then you need to start learning to live in 2021 without the access to those things. You need to do the hard work to cut that stuff out of your life because it would be better for you to enter into eternity with no technology than to spend the rest of your life burning in the flames of hell because you couldn't say no to the temptations of this world. So there is a component of saying, I'm giving this to you, my desires. I'm saying, do this in me, change, give me new desires, transform me, I'm repenting of this stuff, I don't want it anymore. And there's also a physical act of, um, I disconnected my internet. I had to tell these people that I just can't hang out with them anymore. I had to change my schedule at work because I can't be around that secretary anymore. Are you feeling where I'm going? You understand? It is that serious how we treat sin. Let's go to verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now that word despise means to look down on with the implication that one considers the object of little value. So see that you do not look at children like they have no value. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Wow, that's wild. We'll unpack that in a second. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, I'm going to tread into some very deep waters for a moment. I just pray that you give me a little bit of grace because I am just simply going to interpret the scriptures based off of what they say. Now this, the parable of the lost sheep, is mentioned again in Luke 15, 1 through 7. And in that section, Jesus is talking about sinners repenting. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's using the same story to teach a different principle. When lost sinners repent, man, a party is thrown in heaven. Don't you think your heavenly father would go after the one? Absolutely. But what he's talking about here is he's using the same principle of the lost sheep to explain this child that he has standing in front of him. So he says, for I tell you, this child that's standing in front of me, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. What little ones? Imagine the little one who's standing right in front of him. He's got his hands on his shoulders. Don't despise these little ones. Why? 
because you guys all know that this dude right here, he's got an angel, he has an angel in heaven who right now is beholding the face of God. And that kind of blows a lot of theology out of the water. Okay, so now you're telling me that children have got an angel in heaven? He's using that to drive home this point. He's saying that if, I should probably preface this, in Jewish culture, there is a very robust theology around angels, okay? In the Jewish culture, they believe that countries had angels, cities had angels, churches were assigned angels, we see that in the book of Revelation, and apparently from Jesus' mouth here, children, have angels. Now why is that important? Is that important for us to start doing a deep dive into angelology? No, that's not why he's saying it. He's making this point to illustrate how important and how valued children are. If God went through the desire to ordain that a child here on earth had in some way an angel in heaven that's beholding the face of God, then how important do you think God sees children? And then he gives us another illustration. Some of you guys out here are sheep, farmers, you're sheep. Some of you guys are farmers, not farmers. I guess you'd be shepherds. Some of you guys out here are shepherds and you got sheep. If you lost one of your sheep, that's not a human, it's a sheep, how how much would you search, how much would you leave the 99 to go after that one specific one just so you wouldn't lose it? Everybody's like, yep, I'd go after the sheep. So then what makes you think, if you know that God sees the value of children so strong, and you understand the value of an animal, that you would not value human life in the form of a child? And how would you not start that value system the moment the child is conceived? How is it that you're going to ordain laws in your nation that determine that the moment a child comes into the world, anything done to it is prosecutable by the law, but the moment that the mother who chooses to do something to the child while it's still in her belly, nah, that's fair game, because it's not a person yet. We've got heartbeats, we've got movement, we've got reaction to music, we've got kicks, belly movement. No, not a person yet. Not valued. And the point I'm trying to make is not about the atrocities that is abortion. The point I'm trying to make is the point Jesus is making, and that is children are valuable in the eyes of God. Now follow this logic with me. You can disagree with me if you want, that's fine. But this is the logic I follow. Jesus is standing there with a the child and he says, I care for this child. My father cares so much for this child and all children that he assigns angels to them that behold his face in heaven. And he loves them so much that he would not let one of them perish in hell. What do I believe Jesus is saying? I believe he's trying to tell us that our father values children so much that none of them are in hell, and that a child who dies as a child is right now in heaven, and you will see them again. Now why am I saying that? Because sorrow and loss is real in this world, and many of you have lost your children. And I'm not saying this and bringing this up in order for us to for me to seem like I understand the all nuances of what he's saying and how this works or what's, is there some age of accountability? I don't understand or know any of that and I'm not trying to speak on that. I'm not even trying to get you to have some kind of deeper understanding of how angels work. I don't care. What I do care about is that these words are a comfort to me 
and I pray they are a comfort to you. There is coming a day where you will see your children again. Amen? Let's go to verse 15. So he switches from children and he starts talking about brothers and the relationship between each of us. He says, if your brother sins against you, so now we're kind of tracking along this pattern of like sin. He started in verse nine. He's talking about this idea of the punishment for sin, that there are certain, that the children are not gonna see that. If your brother sins against you, verse 15, here's what I want you to do. In the, in the economy of God's family, if one of your brothers sins against you, I want you to go to him and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't listen to you, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, if he refuses to listen to you, then take it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then at that point, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Because truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on anything on earth and they ask it, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now 18 and 19 don't seem really connected to 17 unless you dissect what he's saying in the context of what he's saying it. Jesus is talking about family and family relationships. He's pivoted from children into the brother, the sister relationship, how we treat each other within the church. And he's telling us that the people of God don't let issues go unresolved because we don't serve a God who lets issues go unresolved. We bring the tough stuff up to each other. We share in joy, we rejoice with each other, but we also share and bring in the tough stuff to each other because reconciliation is a part of our DNA. It's how we are the children of God. We were reconciled by Jesus. So you don't get to accept it and never extend it. So what's the parameters for how that works within the context of a church? This is important. Because God loves unity in his church. We're told in the book of Acts that that when when they were all in one accord, the Holy Spirit showed up and God moved mightily. And so God is fighting for the people of God to be on the same page. But we don't want to be. We want to be right and we want to argue. So what happens when stuff comes up and there needs resolution? Well, the first thing we do is we go to the person. We don't go to somebody else about it. We go to the person. We go to the person and try to reconcile it. And if the person that we're going to is re- refuses to repent and doesn't want to turn, then you bring two or three witnesses with you and have a conversation with the person then. Why do you bring more people into it? Because you need a gut check that this is not you building a case that only you believe. You need outside perspective of people who are not involved in the confrontation to give wise counsel so that you can have your heart checked and also the person who needs repenting, who needs to repent, he can have his heart checked. So the second step is you bring two or three witnesses, but if you go to this person and they don't wanna repent, the next step is to bring it before the church. Now what is the point of bringing it before the church? Well, I see it as twofold. One, so that more people are involved in, in the discussion, so more people are aware of the refusal to repent, but also as a last ditch, last ditch effort to help this person understand that if you don't repent, this is what you're losing. You see the beauty of this? If you want it your way, you can't have this. You can't fellowship in this, you can't share in the joy of this and have it your way. It's God's way or no way. So when we bring the church into it, what we're saying is, this is it, man. You either turn from your wicked ways or you're going to lose community with us as a people. Because what's going to happen is if you refuse to repent at this point, then we're going to become to you, you're going to become to us just like Gentiles and tax collectors. You're people on the outside. You don't get to participate in the community that is the family of God because you're not acting and stepping in line with the family of God. Now, after these instructions, Jesus offers some strange commentary. He starts talking about binding and loosing and answering prayers and promising things to when two or three gathered. What's he saying? 
Well, if we're just tracking what he's saying in the context of walking in repentance, we've gotten to a place in verse 17 where there is no other thing we can do with the person. We're supposed to treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector because we have gotten nowhere. After three steps, we've gotten nowhere with this person. So what do we do? What can we do now? The only thing left to do is pray. And every time a group of people gather and pray, when two or three gather and the agenda for prayer is reconciliation, you can be guaranteed that the Father will always hear that prayer and Jesus will always respond. Look, in the kingdom of God, we're binding up hostility. We're binding up arguments and division and we're loosing freedom and unity. And if you can't get on that train, then you're like to us, a Gentile and a tax collector, because we're about his business, not our business. And if you wanna come into the local church and make it all about you, there's no place for you here. He's in the spotlight, not you. And if you want to hog the spotlight, it is only eventually a matter of time before you are no longer a part of the family of God and you will then no longer reap the benefits of being in community. But that does not mean that we have done all that we can do. There is one final step that we can do and it is a powerful step and we're told that we can pray for you. So if you're in a situation with somebody in your family, somebody that's in your family because they are a believer, and you have come to the end of your rope and there is no other stuff than you can do, take comfort in the fact that you do still have prayer and God has the power to work in their hearts in ways that you do not. And so while you cannot physically do anything else for them, you can certainly pray for them and the Lord will answer your prayer. Let's go to verse 21. So then at this point, Peter comes up to him and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? and I forgive them. As many as seven times? So this is interesting. The question that Peter brings up, it prompts this conversation. Jesus, how far do we take this? And this is classic. Many of you are probably thinking this. Okay, I understand. I'm supposed to forgive, 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 but like how much? Like how far? How far do I go? When can I stop praying for them? Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Let me tell you a story, Peter. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a lot of talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I will repay everything to you. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. And when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who had owed him a hundred denarii less and seizing him, he began to choke him and say, pay me what you owe. So this fellow servant fell and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When the fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all of that debt because you pleaded with me and you should not have had mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you. And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And this parable is abundantly clear. Forgiveness is the foundation that you stand on. You can't receive it and never give it. We are a people who live by forgiving from our heart. It flows out of the very essence of who we are because that is who changed us. That is what Christ is like. You cannot be one who was forgiven and not be one who also forgives. So, this brings us to the end of our study for today. What have we learned? First, children are a blessing and they're a model for us in striving for humility. Two, unity in God's family is really important and we shouldn't let sin at any level rip that apart from us. But three, if division does rise up, we should do everything we can to seek reconciliation. Now we talked last week about the sorrow 
of suffering loss. And in the kingdom of God, you're not promised that everything will go your way. What you're promised is loss and suffering. You will reap the reward in eternity, but you will not always reap the reward here. Because your reward is him. It's Jesus. But in getting Jesus, you don't just get the man. You get his entire kingdom and the way he does everything. And one of the things that is a cornerstone of his kingdom is the fact that we as a people get to share not just in him and eternal life and joy, but each other. When we come to Jesus, you are adopted into a family that is larger than any family you were ever born into. In Jesus, we get each other. We get to share in the joy of each other. That's part of our inheritance. So as we finish today, I want today's message to be a reminder for us to cherish and do everything we can to protect the unity of the saints because it is part of our inheritance. Coming to Jesus means I get to share my life with you and you get to share your life with me. It means my kids have more grandparents than they can count now. It means my kids get to grow up watching more than just their mom and dad talk about the benefits of serving Jesus. They get to watch in the lives of all of you. And in turn, your kids get to see what it looks like to not just walk out the principles of Jesus in your home, but it's also mirrored in my home when you come over to my house for dinner. That is the joy we share in being the people of God and I don't want us to treat it lightly or forget it. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.